Hi, Jim here. Thanks for listening to this past episode of the Ski Podcast. Since releasing this podcast, we have a new supporter of the show. The Ski Podcast is now supported by Switzerland Tourism. They will be helping us explore some of the 355 ski destinations across the country, from famous names of Samaritz, Lax, Davos and Zermatt, to the lesser-known resorts that cover their mountainous land. We will be reporting on them and telling interesting stories about the people who live and work there. In total, there are 7,067 kilometres of slopes to ski and 1,800 lifts to ride and at least 80 of them are funiculars, which is good because I do love a good funicular. Well, there's a lot to do, so while we get on with that, you can get on with listening to this episode of the Ski Podcast. Thanks, listener, and thanks, Switzerland Tourism. Hello, this is the Ski Podcast, recorded from the Alps and Brighton. Our podcast is hosted by Ian Martin and myself, Jim Duncan. Combined, we have 50 years of living, working and playing in the world of ski. Although I'd say Ian, um, those uh, years are probably heavily weighted towards you more than me. So hi, Ian. Uh, hi there, Jim. Well, I mean, you're catching up because you're in the mountains right now, aren't you? So uh, every day passes, you've got a little bit more experience of uh, being in the mountains over me. Indeed. Uh, coming up in this episode, we're going to be talking bro machines, weekends skiing, uh, Val d'Azere, start of the season. I've been to Sasfay. Dave from Snow Pros will be talking to me about the length of his skis. And we are reopening the book review. Don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on Twitter at the Ski Podcast. You can email Jim at the Ski Podcast.com or Ian at the Ski Podcast.com. You can follow Ian on Twitter himself at Skipedia. Find me on Instagram at the Average Skier or find us on Facebook naturally. And you can get all the information you need if I'm speaking too fast on our website, which is the Ski Podcast.co.uk. Um, it's the middle of September and there's already been some snow. Did you see that, Ian? I did see that because um, I update a number of social channels and and uh, users like nothing more than a photo of snow, even if it's only like a sprinkling uh, on the top. Uh, really good engagement. It was just a sprinkling where I am, yeah. Wasn't it? Okay, tell me. Yes. Yeah. Well, well you... it wasn't very much. I only saw it when I was running. Um, it was just on the top um, about... 2,000 metres um, uh, on the uh, La Barme area of La Clusa. But, you know, down in uh, the east end, uh, down in Austria, the way, there's like 60 centimetres, isn't there? Yeah, for sure. The um, I mean, this weekend, I think the uh, Stubai and Solden glaciers are both uh, opening. So it's, it's kind of weird because they closed early um, because it was so hot in the summer and now they're opening uh, early in the autumn. And I think Val uh, Senales in Italy glacier is opening as well this weekend. It's quite a lot of snow to make such a big difference, isn't it? If everything was just really starting to run out. But we'll talk about more glaciers, I think, later on. Um, last last episode, Ian, you presented me, you told me about a new ski um, Lego project. Yes. And there's more Lego ski. Who would have thought, with only a few weeks to go until Christmas, they'd be bringing out new products? Well, actually, they're not bringing it out. If you look, Ian, um, uh, it's... A concept one, you know, like they used to bring out, they bring out concept cars and take them to car shows. Right, okay. These are concept Lego ideas, and you have to vote. And if it gets to 10,000 votes, they put it into production. Okay, okay. I didn't, and now, now I'm actually looking at the page, and I kind of see what you mean. That when, uh, right now, I see 5,378, so a bit of time to go if you want to get the Snow Groomer print-off light. I think it's a bit of um, uh, a publicity sump by the Peace Basher owners, not that they really need to push it, I don't think. Um, but it's a Technics Lego set, and it's a Peace Basher, and it's it's really technical. Like, I think all the bits go up and down, it's remote control, looks cool. Looks better than the one we looked at last week, I tell you that. It, it does look very impressive, I imagine. It would, I mean, is it a working model? Would it work? Has it got batteries it in it? It is a working model. It goes forwards, backwards, left and right. There um if you look at if you look down in the comments, there's a guy called um, Count Devote Belts. He's raised a big issue with it though. Oh. He says it's it's great, but as anyone has ever seen these beasts at work knows that the orange light needs to flash while it's working. <laughs> 
Uh, and you, you may wonder why that is, but it's because of, um, his reply by a guy called Redera Double O um, says that, you know, it's true what he's saying because the original Lego power function lights cannot blink. Um, so it will not be accurate in the light flashing. But however, you can groom your garden if it snows. Mm, yeah, but I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm prepared to take the health and safety risk to groom my garden if it doesn't have orange flashing lights. So that one, for me, I'm out. Whoa, big statement. Um, there was another like PR stunt I noticed. Um, there's a website called Teton Gravity, and they do loads of um, stuff. They've got big rides. It's, it's a really cool website to have a look at. And they do some kind of tongue-in-cheek stuff. And I think this one was um, a kind of an SEO clickbait page for the Epic Mountain Pass. Mm. And basically they were saying there was a tram, uh, a tramway. They call, What's a tram in uh, gond- uh, America? Gond- That's gondola basically... or cable car, I think is what they call uh, yeah. it's their word for a tram. So the story was that they clearly have fake newsed and that they, this resort had closed the tram and it's been replaced by an hour and 37 minute magic carpet. <laughs> and it mainly made me think, I mean, how would you feel if this actually happened in one of the resorts you frequently go to? How would you feel about being on a, an hour and a half magic carpet? I mean, I feel pretty cross about being on a 15 minute or not even a 15 minute, uh, 15 meter magic carpet. What do you think, Ian? I think everyone hates magic carpets unless you're a beginner or four years old. A magic carpet isn't um, what you're looking for. I do like the way Teton Gravity come up with stories like this. There's an excellent one because they they really don't like epic uh, resorts. Uh, you know that combination where they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, Vale Resorts, I think, is it's it's Vale Resorts who have an epic past. So they write these uh, fake mm. news posts about epic resorts, and they had a really good one earlier this year about how um, epic resorts were. Um, releasing uh, or opening a lift that would allow people to go to the top of Everest to avoid the queues. Did you see that? No, I didn't see it. I didn't. Right. Okay. Well, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, at theskipodcast.com and you'll be able to see it. (laughs) Magic. Good. Magic carpets. Um, Would you go like um, drag lift or magic carpet? What would you prefer? T-bar with someone who's a different height from you or a, a button lift? Right. No magic carpets. They are awful, aren't they? Yeah. Um, the other interesting news story or um, thing that's been in recently is uh, this guy, um, I think they called him Disney, um, who has been accused by the mayor of Chamonix. He was very cross with him because he left a rowing machine halfway up Mont Blanc. Yeah. Um, I mean, out of context, I get I'm on the mayor's side if you read the headlines. You know, that's a ridiculous thing to do. But in context, this was a, a very British thing to do, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I'm more on the side of, uh, of the mayor myself. Um, you know, you can't be just dumping a, a rowing machine halfway up a mountain. If you're going to take it there, you need to take it back. Uh, the context is the weather had turned really bad and the sensible thing was to go down. Is that the issue? Yeah, the weather had turned bad. He was carrying up there for to raise charity in that ridiculous English way of just doing something a bit sillier. Um, and in fairness to the guy, he left it really nicely tucked away in the corner of um, uh, Refuge Hut. Mm. And there's nothing to say he wasn't going to go back and get it. He was trying to raise money for charity. So, you know, I, I think I'm on his side. Yeah, well, I think it's part of a broader issue because uh, that guy, I think, is the mayor of Saint-Gervais uh, rather than Chamonix because uh, the guy came up on the uh, um, tramway de Mont Blanc. But regardless... I think they're concerned about you know queues forming for going up to Mont Blanc, like we've seen at, at Everest. Plus, uh, this summer there was a guy who took his dog up there, despite the fact he'd been told uh, not to. And I believe the the dog uh, returned with bloodied paws. And no one likes a a dog with bloody paws, do they? And then obviously earlier in the season, I think we mentioned this in a previous episode of the podcast about these guys who uh, landed a plane about. 4,000 metres, didn't they? On the top of Mont Blanc. Yeah, they did. And do you know how much they got fined for that? 28p. It was 38 euros. 38 euros, yeah. That's, that's, that is cheaper than a lift pass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're saying that... that um, they think it's, you know, getting out of hand. You know, people were doing anything and everything to the, to the top of Mont Blanc. But if you're saying there's big queues, maybe the the answer is that people need to take carry up more recreational things like a pinball machine or um, I don't know a Punch and Judy. So something to keep 
keep the cures entertained. Maybe that's, uh, you know, no one needs that extra exercise of a rowing machine. So maybe they, they should think about taking other things up. You ever taken anything weird up the mountain, Ian? <laughs> I once took a PVC apron up the mountain that I took from a hotel. That, and the, the PVC apron was good for the KPs, the dishwashers, so you could hose them down at the end of the shift. And we took them to the top of uh, the Salir and tried to sledge down. And I also went skiing. I found a jar of pesto in my pocket once. That was a bit silly. Okay, um, I can't match it? either of those, I'm afraid. You're, uh, you're well I mean, ahead. They're, they're, no, they're no rowing machine, I admit. But yeah, there we go. Um, Ian, you've got an interview uh, with a man called Gavin from Ski Weekends. Or Ski Weekend. Please tell me which one is correct. You have to be very precise about this. This is Ski Weekend, the company who've uh, been in business since 1987. And Gavin Foster uh, is their founder. And uh, I interviewed him about um, the warm-up weekend, which is the trip they do to Val d'Isere. And in fact, this is the 20th anniversary of that uh, event. Uh, So let's have a listen to that. Uh, Hi, Gavin. Are you all right? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Excellent. Um, I, I noticed or I've been reading a bit about the, uh, the warm-up weekend, uh, an event in, in Val d'Isere. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a, a little bit more about it. Obviously, it happens very early in the season. Um, you know, how, did, how did that warm-up weekend come about? You know, when did it start? I can't remember the original dates of when we very first started um, going to Val d'Isere. Um, essentially, Ski Weekend used to take their resort team there in the early part of the winter on, on the opening dates of um, Val d'Isere weekend. And we used to do staff training where we drove, um, uh, learned to dry, dry, drive on snow and ice um, in the car parks, in the coach car parks, which were disused. Right. And we had a couple of days of skiing and ski training uh, with some professionals that would come over from either from Chamonix or be in residence in Val d'Isere. And then our guests would come in for the weekend and uh, we'd do a long weekend, uh, which was unique to Val d'Isere. Um, that program slightly changed and, um, and um, moved on as time moved on, um, not least with Jean-Claude Fudeau, who worked for Ski Weekend, uh, was a resident of Oxford and worked for us in our okay. UK office. And he was the ex-head of the ski school in Val d'Isere. So right. Jean-Claude had some pretty strong ideas about what we should do and how we should do it. And um, at the time, the Val Tourist Office came up with a Premier Neige or Premier Trass package, um, which helped us in order to have um, a four-day stay, a four-day ski pass, um, all rolled into one with the help of um, uh, the Val d'Isere, Val d'Isere resort area. And we then promoted that as what we called our warm-up to um, the Ski Weekend guests. And fortuitously, we've had um, not always the same guests, but uh, the majority of the same guests for many, many years. And um, it's a really sociable, fantastic start to the winter season. Um, and we, in probably 20, more than 20 years, we've only had one poor start to the winter. Right. It's easy to imagine that the Premier Neige or Premier Trass, uh, you know, has kind of been around forever, but it was, in fact, a kind of, I guess, a marketing concept created by Val d'Isere to bring people into the resort for that for that first uh, opening of the resort. And, and your warm-up weekend happens to fit in around that. Is that how... I, th- I think the dates probably reflect um, Val d'Isere wanting to get the resort open for uh, the Criterium de Neige, which is the yeah. uh, 8th or 9th of December, and has been the first European um, alpine activity of the winter season. Um, usually uh, the races have come from North America, from Canada or from America, and they come into Val d'Isere. And um, I imagine that you know, Val d'Isere want to have everything up and running and, and um, have guests into the resort, and um, hence they start the uh, the promo. Yeah. But your warm-up weekend you're operating is typically the week before the actual uh, downhill racing. That's absolutely correct. It's the, it's the opening weekend 
whenever that coincides on the Saturday, and last year it was actually substantially earlier than normal in November, but it's the first Saturday, or last Saturday in November, first Saturday in, in December, um, starting opening the winter season. Right. And when, when people come out on the weekend, effectively you have different, you know, guiding or instruction options for them. I think they, there's there's different options depending on their on their levels or what they're looking for. Is that how it works? We typically run three to four ability groups from off piste, off piste with ski touring, to um, piste perfection with Guillaume Ravenel where people clearly are working on ski techniques, skiing on the piste, and venturing a little bit off the side of the piste. But the, the goal is to have guests in groups that are where they are comfortable and moving around the mountain at speeds uh, and on terrain that suits them. Right. And, and the, the during the day and of an evening? Yeah, the, the really interesting thing about... Um, uh, the weekend is that we tend all to meet at the bottom of the lift uh, first thing in the morning at uh, 10 to 9. And we disappear into the mountainside um, and have great skiing, try to meet up at lunchtime uh, if it's feasible to do that. But the unique thing about the weekend is that every evening there's a venue organized for dinner and pre-dinner drinks. And it's a very sociable affair. Yeah, and, and you know what a great way to start off the season as well to be able to um, you know get some skiing in possibly before well in November and before the ski season started in most ski resorts. It, it's um, in a way when we return home to Chamonix, it's a very sad reflection of how different life is in some of the other ski resorts because when you're in Val d'Isère, the car is parked in a very expensive underground car park. Um, <laughs> the lift system is incredible, and uh, the skiing is usually excellent, and all we do is focus on skiing um, for, a, for a full four days whilst we're away in Val d'Isère for the long weekend. Yeah, and, and I think I'm right in saying that there's an opportunity. Do you do kind of a video analysis or a, you know, a video reviews from the instructors as well? The... Um, the, the ski professionals of which there are mountain guides and ski instructors that come over from our, the ski weekend team in Chamonix that are really well known to uh, the clients and many of them have skied with uh, the same ones on lots of previous occasions, both here in the, in the Chamonix Valley as well as in Val d'Isère. Um, there is a, an um, a ongoing, um, uh, what's the right word, assessment where um, there's some video analysis, video taking at the, at the beginning of the day or in the middle of the day, and then the review at the end, and then a debrief um, at the, um, in the evening time over a beer. <laughs> Sounds good. So this is an event for kind of keen skiers, you know, keen to improve their technique, but mix with other kind of uh, keen skiers at the, at the start of the season and then for a, for a good season ahead. I think you've hit the nail on the head. It, it's never, ever going to be um, um, the most cost-effective cost way of, of taking a weekend. But if you are a keen skier and want to get uh, on track and ready for the beginning, the, the start of the season with some ski professionals and, and make some nice turns, it's a perfect start. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, it's, in 2019, it's going to be going on from Friday the 29th of November to Tuesday the 3rd of December. And if you want to find out more about it, you can look at uh, skiweekend.com. Uh, uh, thanks very much for your time, Gavin. Um, I'm quite jealous. So I'll <laughs> see if I can fit it into my calendar and maybe we'll see you out there. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. What are the dates for that, Ian? 29th of November to the 3rd of December. So, yeah. 29th of November. I'm going to write that down. 29th of November. So that really is the beginning of the weekend. Uh, yeah, beginning of the season. Uh, yeah. Start of the ski season in Val d'Isère. Sounds yeah. pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they get a lot of people going uh, year after year. And, you know, depending on what your level is, you can join different groups, etc. Do you think you might want to go over there and join them? Yeah, I might go over there. Um, I can hang out with Gavin. Well, can I hang out with Gavin? Yeah, what's the official opening date for La Calusa? 
for the Clouseau, um, I think it's like the 20-something of December. Right. That's how official I know. Okay, they're not... Um, yeah, they don't, they don't open... They end up open the weekend before Christmas, but I think the one around the corner, the Grand Bonhomme, opens, uh, if snow permitting, at the beginning of December. Right, because most of them... So you've got a couple in November, like uh, Val Torrens, Val d'Isere, etc., and then you get a few on that 7th of December date, like I think Courchevel probably opens then. Then I haven't actually looked at the calendar be precise about it but uh what you're saying is Lacluza is one of the kind of because they're all open obviously by Christmas so 21 December is the Saturday prior to Christmas so it's either it's either 30th of November 7th of December 14th of December or in your uh, case Lacluza 21 December not long now and then so Ian just listed most weekends in December for opening dates for uh, ski resorts across the Alps. So there we go. That's uh, yeah. You can cross check that. Service. You'll see a, you'll see a database of them all on uh, the show notes uh, at theskipodcast.com. Magic. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Gavin. Uh, see you all in uh, Val d'Isere in a few weeks' time. Um, so I said the other week that I was going to go skiing, Ian, and I have. Excellent. I am very uh, jealous and impressed. Um, skiing in the summer. Uh, tell me, where did you go? I went to Sassfate in Switzerland. I nearly said Austria then. I went to Switzerland <laughs> uh, to this glacier in Sassfate. Yeah. Um, we'd have had, definitely had letters about the incorrect country there. Um, I mean, there's one person, a guy called Paddy, who owns a catering business called Husky. Oh, yeah. He once asked me, why do I like glacier skiing in the summer? And it's a good question. Um, I like it because it's a chance to try out some new skis. It's just, you know, that first day you go skiing is really exciting anyway. I mean, I wouldn't probably do more than two or three days, but it's still really exciting. You know, that first drop-in you do when you're actually really rubbish at skiing because you haven't been for ages. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you get the motion back, you get the um, progression back, and you feel good about it, and you go, oh, yeah, I really like skiing. You get back into it. Um, and it's a bit better than going to an indoor fridge. But I like it. I did some nice turns. Yeah. Um, you know, I love a tea bar in. And I do you, do you have, a, like, a feature on it, a pre-recorded feature that we're going to listen to? I don't. I'm just going to tell you a bit about no, it. Okay. Well, in which case, face. then, I'd like to know what you thought of the snow. Because when I've been summer skiing before, what I recall is you've got to start really early, pretty early in the day, and it can be hard packed, and then you get this sweet spot for, like, about an hour or so, and then it's too soft. Did you kind of find that? Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, I, I decided to drive over in my van and sleep, because it's about three and a half hours' drive from here. So I drove over the night before, slept in my van. Great excuse to you know get away from the children at the end of the holidays. <laughs> I use that as well. Um, I'm glad I did drive as well. Anyway. I'll tell you what, because um, I would have obviously paid for accommodation if I hadn't slept in my van. Yeah. It was very comfy, by the way. Um, this pass is 85 chuffs, 85 euros for a day. Um, uh, but you're right. So the snow conditions were just like that. And it was touch and glow if the glacier was going to open. Really? And the day before it was closed, um, and I was on the phone to Dave saying, are we going to go? Should we go? Should we risk it? Because obviously he was going to leave at six o'clock in the morning to meet me there for eight to get on the lift. Um, The day before it had rained and there was cloud cover and the glacier was closed the the previous day because it just wasn't good enough. Fortunately, the cloud cleared and it um, was a nice temperature overnight. So when we got up there first thing in the morning, like you say, really hard snow, um, like quite tricky, especially for like the first day you've been for ages. It yeah. was proper and what, what sort of time did you get into the, was there a lift queue, a big lift queue? No, um, the car park was pretty full with lots of minibuses, yeah. with different um, ski race teams. There was Russia, there was a few French teams and stuff up there. Yeah, um, We caught the lift at 8 o'clock. We didn't go for the hardcore 7 o'clock start. Yeah. So we caught the lift at 8 o'clock. We got up, had a cup of tea. We were on the slopes by 9, by which point the snow was, was getting poor in terms of quality for some of the races who right. were already leaving. Yeah. They'd gone up, they'd done, their, they'd done their two runs, and they were going back down. Yeah. I think I was probably like one of the only punters um, on, the, on the mountain. Um, the rest were all race teams. Okay, were there any freestylers there? Because I know the British team often go out to Sassfay for some summer training. Uh, the park was big, um, but there wasn't that many people using it. The ones that were, you know, like, they were really impressive. It wasn't, it was, I don't think there's even like a blue 
It's all red runs there. I don't think it was even like a blue park. They're all just massive jumps. Okay. Um, it's it's, um, it's a nice glacier, though. I'd say it was better than Teen, and it's probably better than Zermatt, the Monte Rosa glacier as well for summer skiing. Okay. I think it's a lot nicer. It was quieter than I expected, and I asked why. Because normally you go, and it is full of race teams, lots of slalom going on and stuff. Um, but apparently a lot of teams and races are moving indoors now. Okay. Um because they can get more time on the snow um, quicker and faster when they want to do it, as opposed to, you know... I mean, it took me, what, half an hour on two cable cars and a funicular to get to the top? Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of teams are moving in stores. Well, yeah, then towards okay. the afternoon, it starts getting slushy about 11. They call it hero snow, don't they? <laughs> Do they? Right, OK. <laughs> Apparently it's called hero snows when you can really tuck, carve in. You can, I see. You can find your sweet spot and you okay. feel like a right hero. And then after right. that it gets really slushy and that's when you start catching your tips and then you're yeah. solid not a hero again. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds it sounds uh, pretty good. I mean, 85 chuffs, as you say, sounds like a lot for a day skiing. Uh, but I've been to... It's not even a day skiing, is it? Well, a few hours skiing, yeah. I've been to uh, Ladies Alp on the glacier in the summer. And the key thing there was you had to get to the lift early because there are, there were there so many uh, people uh, mainly race teams going up on the uh, mountain at 7 or 7 30 certainly needed to be there then and you could queue for uh, half an hour uh, just to get onto the lift to get up to the glacier i think a lot of um, glaciers are doing um, race team times so you right know, okay you can get onto the lift yeah. at a certain earlier time and then right. you know, and how, how casual skiers can how go was up your there. skiing then was it was it just a, you know really kind of exciting to be summer skiing to be out of season oh yeah i get really i love it i get a massive smile on my face it's nice to be out in the open doing something i really lo- love doing it's a completely different feel isn't it because you're getting yeah. in a car park you're putting all your hot <laughs> ski gear on you're traipsing up yeah. you don't put your boots on till you're at the top of the lift it's a totally different thing in some respects and then you get on the mountain you're like i really love this yeah. i can't wait for the winter to kick well, off. i like your positivity the uh, key question then would you go back and do it again Glacier skiing? Yeah. Yeah, of course I would. I'd go over to... Um, I might leave it to the November because um, Sasfei um, tends to extend its ski area as the as it, the closer it gets to the winter. So right. It, it, it can extend that glacier area. Um, I saw some interesting stuff with snow farming they were doing there as well, but that's a different podcast. Okay, we'll save um, that one. So, yeah, I would do it again, and um, I'd like to go to the Desalp one. I've done, obviously, a ski Desalp um, glacier in there. The summer in the winter i'd like to go back for the summer and then obviously austria is a bit far for me but we'll see there we go that's my satisfy experience and we'll hear from more from actual dave who i was skiing with um in a little bit of time but before that ian any reviews well actually we have got a new review uh from a couple of weeks ago on on itunes that i spotted it's from matt um 32 lfc does that make him a liverpool fan uh he says uh, gives us five stars his, uh, his headline is so good, I've reviewed it twice. Uh, have been addicted to this for the uh, past 12 months. I reviewed the podcast when I started listening. And having been through all episodes, I can safely say it gets better each time. That's really nice of you wow. to say that, Matt. Yeah, I think we're honing our, uh, our production. Uh, great interviews, knowledge and chat. Look forward to each episode as it keeps my snow fix going when I'm not on the slopes. Keep up the good work. Well, you know, that's made my day, Matt. Uh, thank you very much. I think we. I need to apologise, Matt. That is terrible. I mean, I wouldn't want to force anyone into addiction. That is an appalling <laughs> thing to do. Yeah, so, well... Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Um, I'm delighted, nevertheless. And if we're getting better and better, imagine how good you it's going to be in like pusher. four or five years' time. We'll just be incredible. Yeah, we'll be amazing. We'll be podcast heroes. Um, and what about has anyone asked us any questions recently does anyone want to know anything because we are fonts well of they okay it. they do um, I think this was from Mark John but it could be John Mark could be one of those French things but uh, on Facebook he said either way he's uh, definitely a double disciple <laughs> right okay love the ski podcast since I discovered it a year ago but he has asked a couple of questions and I think we'll deal with try and deal with one he says what about motorhoming in ski resorts what do, you, what do you think, Jim? You were in your van just now over in Sasfe. Obviously, it was summer, so maybe that was a, 
a bit better but what do you think yeah i mean it was still i mean at night it was still like 15 degrees so it was you know right. fairly comfortable sleeping in my van under a duvet um, I think if you've got the right motorhome, go for it. Like I've done some research into it before, and I know that you you can spend the money to get like Arctic level camper vans, and I suggest you do that. Um, a lot of people do like um, conversions, don't they? You see a lot of old. Um, I think the unpolitical correct term is crusties. Is that right, Ian? It you see these crusties could be yeah in car parks in vans, and they've built um, they put log burners and stuff in it. Um, there's a lot of campsites as well. Like, for example, down the road from me, there's a campsite that's open all winter long. Um, I know there's one in Borg San Maurice. Um, uh, if you wanted to camp there, get the funicular up. There's lots of options. I don't think you should rule it out. You certainly see, or I see, a lot of people in moto because we, we have a motorhome in the UK. We've taken it to the Alps in summer, but we've never been there in winter. And I really, I mean, we looked at it in, in Lehman Weir. Uh, we were there in April and the, the main chairlift we took up in the morning went over a motorhome park where you can plug in you can get electricity uh, but i kind of think there's so much extra stuff that you have in in winter that you don't have in summer with your skis and uh, all your different uh, you know kit and everything like that i think maximum two people in a motorhome you know when we're away it's two adults two kids and uh, mm. that feels quite tight for space but people definitely do it and, you know, those municipal um, uh, camp, they're not campsites, are those municipal parks for motorhomes, uh, are pretty good value, you know, relative to anything else in a resort. Um, but that's at 1,800 metres. I mean, OK, it was April, but you see people all year round. There's a, there's a very good campsite in Borg San Maurice. Have you ever, do you know the one I'm talking about there? Yeah, I know exactly the one you're talking about. Okay, you do get people there who are, uh, you know, there all year round. And that's a bit lower. You've got the town there and you can get the funicular up to uh, Lezarg. That could be... Uh... Uh, my friend Spanky, hi Spanky, he did a season um, in the back of uh, Volkswagen T3. You know, they are not spacious vehicles. Yeah. And he parked in the... I think he literally just lived in the car park in Meribel and um, uh, got gym membership. <laughs> and that's where he showered and washed. Okay. But that, you know, can work. Doesn't <laughs> appeal to me, that. That would mean he wouldn't be so crusty, right? He'd be uh, one of the cleaner members of uh, all that. That's a little harsh mm-hmm. to, uh, to paint all motorhomers with the same brush. But there, have, there are some people who are really getting the value for money out of it. But if that's your way of doing a season and you can still spend your whole time out there in the Alps, then, then why not? And if you are motorhoming, you know, you can, you can move around and get to where the snow is. Be flexible. Well, we've talked about this um, big pass that you can buy. What's the, what's the European um, ski pass that you know, we talked about? Yeah, is it called Snow Pass, I think? We mentioned it back could in be, one of our be. previous episodes and I will drop a link I mean, in. That's the ideal thing for motorhoming, right? You, can, you have that, yeah. you've got the time, you potter to each resort, you haven't got to check in, book in. That's, you know, that, is, that would be a nice thing to do. Yeah, it was yeah. episode 35 we uh, discussed Magic Pass oh, and knowledge. Snow Pass. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'd do it for that, but I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, I would do it. I don't know what I'm about. It's my. I've talked to Fran about it. She said she won't do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I you know maybe April time is the time to uh, to handle it when you know it's warmer in general. But uh, maybe I'm just uh, you know not hardcore enough for that. So Dave, John, John, Dave, do it. Yeah. Incidentally, we have got another uh, review here. I just noticed a comment on Facebook from someone called Janet. Janet Barnett, she said uh, she was listening to episode 39, our last episode, and perfect timing, currently driving back to the UK after spending the last month in Mirabel. Um, but she does say it's a little harsh that we're likened to Alan Partridge. We think so we have a very enjoyable and informative podcast and looking forward to listening every, every two weeks, she says, now the summer is over. Does she know something about our schedule? We don't. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. Well, we better get moving. Janet, we'll make it every two weeks from now on, probably. Brilliant stuff. Right, um, next. Uh, like I said, I was just in Sasfay with yeah. uh, um, friend of the show and ski friend uh, Dave Burrows. Uh, we had a question from someone else who wanted to know about uh, the length of skis. Oh, yeah. And, and was that, was that you Mark can hear all about that. I mean, he and I, I did a, one of the winters I worked, I had a 50-member team of staff and I worked with. And obviously, you know, I'd say, you know, 
fifteen percent of that I was rotating uh, from injuries and stuff. I got to the end of the season. I still uh, I probably only knew four people's names. So if you're asking me to remember a podcast person that reviewed us, I love you all very much, but no, I can't remember his name. Okay, no anyway. worries. Well, let's see what Dave had to say about uh, what the right ski length is. Right, Andrew Brannan, I hope you're listening because I've come all the way to Switzerland and I've sat in a revolving restaurant yeah. with um, Dave Burrows from Snowpro Ski School, who have also just found out is um, a qualified ski tech, which is very handy for the next question. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I was a qualified ski tech um, when I very first came out to the Alps. I decided to make myself as uh, multi-useful as possible, so I took a, a, a ski tech course, and uh, and that was you know something I never used, but it was useful to have in my back pocket. As you know, I did my first year as a ski instructor. I did three different jobs. I think I was you know working in a bar, skiing, teaching ski during the day, driving transfers at night, and you do what you got to do when you're trying to make a life out here. But yeah, ski tech was one of the the strings to my bow. So. But I assume it's also an important information that you have as a ski instructor. Right? It's useful to know how it works, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How the bindings work, how, you know, you'd be, we're, you, you, we're not really authorised to change, you know, settings and stuff like that on the mountain. You'd be, you'd be a fool to do that. But, you know, when you can see that something's gone wrong or a binding is kind of flicked out or whatever, that's, um, that's a useful thing to know how to just put it back. So um, this question that we've got um, from Andrew Brown um, is, how long should my skis be? Um, do you want a bit of context on that? Yeah, go on, tell me. Um, Sorry, I can see you've got the rest of the question there. I've got so the rest start. of the question here. It says, my dad started in the 1950s and he skied 215s. It's quite long, isn't it? That's really, he was just a good skier. And it says here, it's, that was quite a short pair of skis, as he was only 5 foot 8. Um, he never got much beyond intermediate level. Not surprising, really. Um, the first pair Andrew owned was uh, 203s. And yeah. in the cable car, I stood them on my boots to make them look longer when I was teaching the kids. I skied 150s, mm-hmm. so I could ski with them between my legs and pick them up more easily. The kids, that is. Um, so there's comedy within his left This is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and he says, now I have no idea what I should be skiing. Um, what do cool young things ski on these days? Well, I can't say that's a big fat QSTs, right? Well, no, yes, yes, and no, and I'm probably not. I'm not a cool young thing. So before we go a bit further into this, I want yeah. to ask: Have you ever skied on the big, straight, old school? Yes, I learned to ski on probably those type of skis, and I'm sure I was using two o threes at one point. I'm always tempted to pick up some from the recycleria or the dechetteria and just try them out and I see how possible they are. I, I think it's a valuable thing mm. for everyone. So at the start of last season, I was doing an experiment for myself where I was skiing 195 uh, Giant Slalom race skis. So the old old spec before the new spec this year, uh, or last year, um, they had 195 35-metre radius skis. And I was skiing them specifically for that, uh, that reason. What was it like to ski these kind of old, longer skis? But in addition, it really, really makes you very, very precise as a skier to ski a longer, older, straighter ski. You can't, you know, you, so... Um, listener, today I've I've lent um, uh, I've lent Jim a pair of slalom skis. You forgot my name then. Yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> I'm trying to get my thoughts in order. Um, I've lent you a pair of one six five slalom skis. So they're a twelve meter radius, beautiful pair of skis. I've been skiing a lot, um, but they turn so easy. All you've got to do is roll them onto an edge, and wham, you know you're round. You try doing that with the one nine five thirty five meter radius ski you'll just fall over, you'll fall to the inside. So it makes you very, very precise in how you set up your your old ski. Now the 195 had quite a, a, a very gradual edge. The old, extremely straight, actual straight skis, you needed to do a whole bun- bunch of extra old funky movement where you had to kind of go up to unweight the ski in order to be able to rotate them. That's all gone. That's old technique. No one does that anymore. Um, um, I, in fact, I don't really teach that anymore. Up on waiting, we don't really teach anymore because we don't need to because the equipment helps us. So, in terms of your question, I mean, I'll flick the question back to you. Your Q98, uh, it's a nice ski. It's a nice ski, yeah. Yeah, what length do you ski them at? How long are they? Yeah. I think they're 179 or something like that, 180. And how tall are you? Um, seven foot. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, long, I'm taller than I look. Uh, six twelve, I think. Okay, so I maybe six eleven. Yeah, 
the, the, generally, the less skilled you are, the shorter you want your ski. But not to the extent that you'd learn on a snowblade. That's, that's pointless. Um, I think the current consensus that they give out in rental shops is around shoulder height. Not knee not chin height. Shoulder height, knee, we'll you know, chin height. Yeah, yeah, that's good audio, isn't it? Um, but as you progress and you get better, you might want to ski on a longer ski. So you've seen my daily ski today. The thing that I always use is a 186 GS ski, mm-hmm. and I am 186. So it is as tall as me. Um, and there is a movement within the ski instructor world where people are moving to longer skis because they are they're, they're smoother for a is start. This, is, that a, is that a tech development? No, it's just so a lot of people are long, going back. Then yeah, the then ultra short and then back out again. Um, I don't know a few ski, ski instructors who ski tend to ski longer skis because they're smoother, they're more comfortable to ski on on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. There comes a point where they become quite unwieldy, so you know within bumps or tight places, it's quite hard to get a, a, a long ski round. Um, but yeah, generally day to day, I don't have a problem with that, that that ski. So I'd go somewhere between maybe your chin and your head. Depend and and Isn't that your nose. <laughs> I don't know what I'm pointing at now. Depending on my head is my nose. Yeah, depending. Well, no, depending on your skill level. Okay. So chin or shoulder, if you're just starting out, maybe. Okay. And then gradually going a bit more. The more you progress and the better you get is is what I would do. The other thing I'd I'd encourage people to look at, which isn't in your in your man's question, but is worth considering. Now you're on a Q98. Which is quite a fat ski. It's quite a wide ski. It's I mean, it was an accident. Um, <laughs> I needed some skis to kind of do me for one season. Yeah. So I had a, a, a broad base. I should have bought the thinner ones, I admit. Yeah. But now I'm, you know, I'm starting to build up a quiver. That's my next game. Yeah. I have a collection. It's nice, it's nice to have, right? Um, I've got my fattest, widest ski that I use in all conditions, uh, in, in off piece, you know, which really dumping now, is a uh, 106. And that's not my daily ski by any means because it hurts my knees. Um, the lever, 106 or 206? 206. 206 would be like a water ski. <laughs> um, no, so the leverage, so I'm, listen, what I'm doing is I'm kind of making a, a funny movement with my arm based on the, on the table. But the, le- the extra leverage on your knees to get a wider edge up and over is massive. And it and it's really not good for your knees to ski these kind of flat skis all the time. So I visualise that by um, having a arm wrestle with himself and <laughs> cheating by lifting his arm up that's how I can describe what he said it's great isn't it um, and so often I'll tell clients right get off of these fat skis come down to something more piece focused most people only ski on the piece it's skiing around on fat skis what's the point so anything between sort of 70 and 80 underfoot will be will be brilliant it will go from edge to edge quicker and it will also be um, it will be more comfortable for you physically on your knees so they're the two you know, two bits of advice probably that I'd get into connection with in connection with ski leg. Okay, that's brilliant. That's a good answer. I'm going to leave you to your James Bond revolving restaurant with the sort of international secret spy of that's of, what I uh, am. of podcasting. I'm the international secret spy of podcasting this thing, and we've got the answer. Thank you, Dave. No worries, mate. So there we go. Very pleasant. I was in a rotating restaurant with a lot of ski teams eating in the background, as you may have been able to hear. But there you go. Essentially, the key thing there, Ian, is the long, the better you are at skiing, the longer you can have your skis. That's what I took away from that. Yeah. How long are your skis, Ian? Oh, you don't own any? Do you? No, I don't own skis. And when I go into the shop and they say to me, you know, what length skis do you want? I just say, look, just give me what you think. I'm not fussed about it, really. There you go. Ian Martin, not fussed about skis. Headline. <laughs> right, book review. What do we go? Going Downhill Fast by Cleves Palmer. That was recommended to us by uh, when we had Ed Drake on the show, which was episode 37, I think, possibly. Yeah, it sounds about right. Um, Ed Drake, ex-Olympic uh, downhiller for Team GB. What did you think of Going Downhill Fast, Jim? Um. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to be rude about this book, especially you know someone has written a book and taken time to write it. I think that's a great thing and well done. Um, I don't think this book is for me, um, to be honest. 
Um, it's for members of the Kandahar um, Ski Club. And the book is about really about um, Cleves's time within and what he did uh, as part of the Kandahar Ski Club. And you know, some of it is insightful. Um, some of it, I think, maybe is a bit unnecessary for me as a reader. Um, good points. Uh, it was short. It had big <laughs> words and lots of photos. Um, <laughs> It felt like, do you know what it felt like, Ian? It felt like an after-dinner speech, a really long after-dinner speech had been written down. Um, it was a bit like, um, it was a bit like those chats you have with your mum about people from her work that you don't really know. That's that's kind of how the book felt. And there was, you know, there was some really, really interesting bits, such as the founding of the club, you know, the first ski races that they held, some really good historical stuff, how the development of the Kandahar Club was directly parallel with the development of competitive racing and amateur racing, how, you know, they influenced um, downhill races in the Olympics. Really interesting stuff in there. But, you know, it probably could have been just a long article or a short essay or something like that. Um, I think if you know Cleves or the Kandahar Club, it's a really good read for you. Um, uh, that's my opinion. What did you think of it, Ian? <laughs> I can't match uh, any of that. I mean, the thing is, I have done the Inferno, uh, the race in uh, Murren um, that he refers to a lot. And therefore, you know, when he talks about skiing down it and all the people, he's kind of shown the route. I could kind of relate to that a little bit. And also I could relate to the fact that he must be a pretty damn good skier to um, yeah, do some of the times and the results that he's, uh, that he's got. Um, but you're right. I mean, one of the things, yeah, it felt, what you said there, a very long after-dinner speech, I think you kind of nailed it there. I mean, he did print this, uh, you know, it was Vanity Publishing as such, in that he printed it uh, himself. Um, and certainly for a lot of people, anyone who's been involved in the Kandahar Ski Club or the Downhill Only Ski Club, or if you're interested in the, you know, the history of British skiing. And I, I really like that insight into the fact that you know, it was genuinely the British and with the Swiss who introduced alpine ski racing into, uh, into existence. Because you know, the first Olympic Games, 1924... There was no alpine ski racing, but uh, you know around that time, the the British were arranging races, and so um, you know that that side of it is yeah is very interesting. But yeah, you know if you were part of the family or part of the Kandahar, you'd find it a lot more interesting. I think the most interesting thing I found was uh, Roger Bushell who you may remember was played by Richard Attenborough in the movie The Great Escape, was a keen skier and a member of the Kandahar Ski Club. There you go. Good fact. So, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be... I'm not negative about the book. I just don't think, you know, necessarily it was um, completely... Yeah. Something. I think com- it wasn't what I kind of expected, I think. Yeah, compared with, you know, some of the other books we've read about, you know... Uh, the avalanche in alpine meadows and uh, you know driving around the alps and the history all of that it doesn't doesn't quite compare to those but for the right person it's uh, it's going to be a good and um, satisfyingly quick read and the money uh, the money um, i think goes towards charity so if you can buy and you can get it on amazon now i know you couldn't get it on amazon when you bought it in but uh, it is possible mm, right okay i think the best book we've read i've read so far i think sham um, yeah. was really good and yeah. tracking the wild kumba so far those ones that have kind of managed to capture the feeling and the essence of skiing that we've read so far or some part of skiing yeah, I'm not, sometimes sure, I think I'm not some sure I read books... that one that was Doug Coombs wasn't it yeah you didn't read that one no. that was the first ever book club I suggest you go back I mean oh. it is a really good read okay so we, we um, will need um, new ideas for our next uh, ski book group so uh, listener I, I do have a recommendation oh okay here. go on hit me I mean, it's in my hand, yeah. so I'm going to read it. <laughs> I mean, I can review it and tell you, Ian, and then you can choose to read it if you want. Um, it's called Inner Skier. This is the revised edition. Um, it's looking quite old. I was given to it by my friend Dave. Um, I think it was based on... A, comes after a book um, about the inner tennis player. Copyright 1990, 1977. So it's from 1977. It's called The Inner Skier. I've got the revised edition. It's got over 2,000, uh, 250,000 copies sold. It's by Timothy uh, Galway and Robert Kriegel. So um, I'm going to read that. Mm, it doesn't sound like 
much of a read to me. It's a, is it a te technical thing to try and make yourself better at skiing? Uh, I think it's about becoming... Um, it's a mental thing. I think it's like one of those psychology books. Yeah. About part of well, becoming it. Well, I'll let, I'll let Jim, you know. Jim might read that, but listener, if you have a you know a good ski-related book that you have read before, please uh, tweet us the ski podcast or email us uh, Ian or Jim at the ski podcast or put a message on Facebook. You know, we'd like a set. Well, I'd like a suggestion that's not the inner skier. <laughs> It's got um, it's got a random bookmark in it. It's uh, oh, yeah. a joker from a pack, a pack of cards. Okay. I always do that. I like to leave a random bookmark in a, a book. So if anyone ever picks it up, they're like, ooh, a headline from the 1974 uh, copy of The Guardian. I'm not that old. But, you know, those sorts of things. I like to do that. Okay. I'll, I'll watch out for the time. Well, maybe I'll just start doing that from now on. You know, my train ticket up to London, the romance of a, yeah. a train travel journey. Absolutely. Um, got anything coming up, Ian, for the next few episodes? Uh, well, yeah, I'm off to... So we had a trade event this week called uh, Ski Launch, which is very interesting. Lots of chat about Brexit, which... Uh, let's not go there. We've done that in a couple of episodes Yeah, moving before. on. Uh, anything? <laughs> any other headlines? Any other uh, headlines from it other than Brexit? Yeah, I mean, actually, I launched a, a project called Ski Flight Free, which you can find at skiflightfree.org. It's just a personal thing that I've started, which is encouraging skiers to travel by train or uh, in a full car to the Alps instead of flying to reduce carbon emissions. And uh, that was received uh, well, and hopefully some companies will change their uh, policies a little bit. Uh, I'm also heading off to Listex uh, later this month, which is the, uh, another you know, trade event. Uh, where I'm on a panel about influencers, uh, I think. So that should be quite interesting, talking to a few people. Um, and for the next episode, episode 41, we should have an interview about um, uh, TTR. They've got a women's only snowball camp in, uh, in Mirabel. So I'm interviewing uh, Corinne, who will be running Ooh. that camp. Corinne is a very interesting person, wasn't she? She used to, she trains a lot of people um, outside of what she does, and she's uh, one of the the bigger names within the female snowboarding world, I believe. Yeah, and uh, you know, we'll see. I'm sure we'll have other bits and pieces as well, but those are some of them. I'm sure there'll be some more email questions from you, listener, and other people as well. Yeah, I think the day after we record it, or on the day we record it, I'm going to be. Uh, heading to the Hi-Fi Festival down in Annecy, which is a big um, ah, ski yeah. festival on the banks of the lake. Yeah. Um, it's like 80 movies that I can go and watch, yeah. and some crazy French pop artists, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, obviously a trade village. I'm looking forward okay. to it. Okay, so sorry, can I just check, what is the date of that Hi-Fi Festival in Annecy? Uh, 4th, 5th and 6th of um, October. Right, okay, yeah, podcast uh, 41, I see it there, yeah, just checking my uh, my diary to see what's going on, so that will be like a few weeks before the ski show, or the London Ski and Snowboard Festival, which you should mention, coming up in uh, in Battersea, 24th to 27th of October, that's the, uh, the only, I think, these days, consumer uh, event, so if people want to go along, I think we'll probably review that maybe in the next episode. Brilliant stuff. All right, then. Well, thanks very much, Ian. I've enjoyed today's podcast. I hope everyone else has. Oh, it's been good. I particularly enjoyed your review of going downhill fast. Yes, uh, I hope Cleves Palmer enjoys my review too. Um, and that's it. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to get in touch with the show, go to the website at theskipodcast.go.uk and you can find all the ways that you can badger us and stalk us there. And obviously, Ian, who should they share the podcast with? Is it like their ski-minded friends? Is it that? Is that it? Yeah, that's uh, very catchy. That good. Yeah. Right then, cheers, in. All right, See you, everyone. Cheers, Jim. Bye.